Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. So today is Friday the 16th of July. I suppose to, to get right into it, Michael, the first thing I wanted to have a, a chat about is a new poll that came out. Poll that was commissioned by the Countess, the uh, feminist organisation, carried out by Red Sea. And it was entirely about the uh, Irish public's view on gender and transgenderism and self-identification. All of that good stuff, Michael. Yes, all good stuff. The first time anybody has ever asked the public about a whole range of questions. Particularly, I was curious to see reaction to the Gender Recognition Bill, which came in in 2015, to remarkably little comment and under remarkably little discussion, and to see what Joe Public seems to think about that. Yeah, the Countess says it's the first time anyone has been polled on this. I can't remember any other polling being done on this, but it's not like I've systematically gone back and checked, so we'll just present that as a, that's what they say, may or may not be true. Sample of a thousand, which is actually very, very solid for these things. Yep. And they say, spread around the country... Fairly close spit on social class. Methodology looks okay. Certainly better than some of the other stuff we've seen come out from people. So as you said, Michael, I think the most immediate uh, thing of interest of the polling is the question they asked about the um, the Gender Recognition Act. Now, they didn't ask directly about that act as such, but they asked people about the ability to change your um, sex on your birth cert. And when people, the general public believe people should be able to do that. And that is one of the things laid out under the Gender Recognition Act. So if you don't agree with the way that act lays it out, you don't agree with the act, basically. So on that, only 17% of people agreed with the current system, which is you can go in, you can self-declare your gender. And then when you've self-declared your gender, you can change your birth certificate pretty much just as you know, a rote form-filling exercise. There's nothing to stop you then. And when they polled the public, 51% of people said that you should be able to change the sex on your birth certificate. But more than half of those said that only when you're fully transitioned through hormones and full gender reassignment surgery. The largest single vote that that was here was people saying that uh, it shouldn't be possible to change the sex on your birth certificate at 28%. One thing about the the polling that I found interesting, gender and sex. Yes. So, and this is not the fault of the countess. This is the way it's used in political discourse and in relation to government departments. The Gender Recognition Act, in certain circumstances, allows you to change your sex, not your gender. Like, your birth cert has a sex on it, not a gender. So, sometimes they're asking about gender, sometimes they're asking about sex, but they're used pretty interchangeably. By official Ireland, if you will. But, but the really tedious thing is that they would actually, if you spoke to them, make a big point about the fact that gender is not sex and sex is not gender and talking about two fundamentally different things. One is a biological thing or it's a physical thing or something that's assigned at birth and the other thing is the way you present and it's a disposition or an attitude, whatever. But when they actually go about framing documents and writing, The fact is that they fall into the old ways or the traps or the whatever reasons they do it. And you end up with this weird mishmash where at times gender and sex are not the same thing. But other times gender and sex are plainly and obviously being discussed as the same thing or being conflated as concepts. And it makes it at times it makes it kind of hard to follow 
but certainly annoying. Yeah, and, and sometimes it comes across as simply accidental or incidental. Yes. And sometimes it comes across as, I think, sort of a Martin Bailey, where it's used to refer to sex when it's beneficial to do so, and then it pushed back on. They'll fall back to, well, no, they're separate entirely. Overall, men are far more likely to say you should never be able to change your birth certificate than women. Nearly half again as likely as women to say that. It actually reminded me of, I don't know if you've ever looked at America, the election maps, Michael, of what the government would have been like in America if it was only men voting. Oh, yes. And it's just solid Republican domination from the birth of the country to today. And the curious thing about that, that's not an inevitability associated with being a conservative party. Maybe the standard expectation these days. But I know for in the 20th century, there certainly have been times in the 20th century where the majority of women supported the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom. And I think and the majority of men would have supported the Labour Party. So it's not, there, there isn't an inevitability about that. I'm kind of surprised, actually, in this case, that it is men who are more particularly bothered about the idea of changing uh, the birth cert because mostly when you're talking about people who are transitioning operating in social situations or in particular social contexts men tend to be far less exercised about it or I, I think to be more frank less threatened by it less concerned about it to be honest Gary on this one it might surprise you I would be one of the set. If we're going to do this at all, if this is something we have decided we're going to do, and we're going to have people changing gender, and the, and the government is going to be getting involved, and you're going to have official, and you're going to have official recognition, and this is going to be something that we have to deal with. I would prefer that people could do it without actually anything other than a self declaration. I think that forcing people to go through hormone and uh, genital surgery in order to achieve this is not a good idea. I understand why they do it, but I think to demand that in order to achieve a certain presentation, people have to go through radical surgery, which, and I suppose this is really my concern, that they may end up very greatly regretting surgery which is ultimately cosmetically recoverable but again with great difficulty and very painful but from a practical shall we say functional point of view not recoverable i think that we should we should operate our systems to insofar as we can avoid people having to go down that kind of road to achieve the what it is they want to achieve about the way they live their lives because that kind of irreversible surgery. I, I think, I don't know, have you ever looked at any of the video work or anything that looked at about what, what the, the full processes of somebody changing gender with surgery? Yeah, it's, uh, it's deeply, deeply unpleasant, particularly the male to female. Substantial surgery, painful uh, significant issue. I mean, it takes a long time to heal, and then to go through that, and then to detransition to regret to go back to have maybe some kind of resort surgeries. You know, uh, 
I think you should try your very best to avoid that and give people leeway. If this is something we're going to do, I'm not saying necessarily I like the idea that the, the metaphor. I don't. I don't really know what it means to say. Say I wasn't. I wasn't. Of course, and that's one thing we should. I suppose maybe say it's worth saying. There, I was talking recently to someone about the INTO video where a teacher says to in this animated video done to help teachers help with. You, I hope you heard the inverted commas. Teachers deal with children, you know, four-year-old and five-year-old children who who are wondering about their sexual identity, Gary, and you know, experimenting and exploring their sexual identity. And one of the children asks the teacher, "So does that mean the boys can become girl, a girl can become a boy?" And he says, "Yes, that's not strictly true, according if we're looking at the understanding that we have from gender theorists. It's not that a boy becomes a girl, but rather." The person was always a girl. I didn't know. I didn't know the regressive nature of that statement when I was watching it myself. Yes, it was upsetting, wasn't it? And I hope that the children weren't too scarred by it. Maybe their defence is that four or five-year-old kids are not sufficiently sophisticated to be able to understand that notion metaphysically, the problem of identity. So that we, for the time being, we'll just say yes, boys can become girls, because you know, that's not a complicated idea. What I one of the and I'll put a link to the full poll because we won't go through everything on it. One of the questions I thought was quite interesting is they asked if um, they just asked if sex offenders should be able to get a gender recognition certificate. Yeah, true self ID, which is true the usual system. Only sixteen percent said yes, and forty eight percent said no. And I find that quite interesting because of this. If you legitimately believe that you can change your gender and or sex, effectively through self-declaration, at will. Yes. What does it matter if they're a sex offender? They would still be the gender they say they are. You know, Gary, isn't it also kind of curious that they asked the question at all? I suspect they may have suspected they would get this answer, Mike. I suspect they may have suspected that. Precisely that. It is interesting to see this, assuming that this is a representative sample of what the public view. There's some really interesting stuff in here, ranging from single-sex toilets to uh, whether or not people should be able to ask specifically for someone of a particular sex to do uh, to provide medical aid to them in different circumstances, whether or not transgender women should be placed in prisons, and also some stuff on sporting. And the sports stuff was also quite interesting. They asked if anyone who hasn't undergone full surgical and hormonal transition should be allowed to compete in female sports. And the public are very against it. Overall, only 21% of people said they should be allowed. But when you go into the breakdown of that, I mean, men between 35 and 54, only 11% say yes. Again, women are far more likely to um, say that they should be allowed. And even they. It was one of the things on which even women across the board were most strongly against. And it doesn't seem to be moving that far down over time either. No. It's, again, curious because it'll be worried to worried to see this happening. It would be fun. It would be women's sports that would be affected rather than men's sports. Yeah. You know, I suppose, Gary, if you transition from female to male and you you went through the the usual hormonal experience both uh, in utero and then you had the, the the hormonal experience as a female in your adolescence 
and you decide you tran you transition from male to fe from female to male, and you go into weightlifting. I'm going to go out the name Gary and say you are not going to be breaking many records. No, and just to to close on on they um they poll people on whether or not it should be taught in the Irish education system that it is possible to be born the wrong body that there are many different genders outside of the traditional male female and that it is possible to change your sex in all of those more people said that it should be done than it shouldn't although there's about a 20% don't know rate i mean the first one born in the wrong body never really understood that one it's those gnostics with their mind body heresy it's you know, it's, 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 it's where it's that or it's Descartes. you know we're all just ghosts in the machine i suspect and this may be just me, you know, looking for my, uh, I suppose, confirmation bias or whatever it is, that a lot of what's going on, it, it, this is, people want naturally to be as broad-minded and as tolerant and as accepting and as including as they can reasonably be. There has been almost no discussion about this in the broader population. There's been no, no debate Nobody has ever actually asked anybody to really consider what does it mean to say born in the wrong body? What do you mean by that? What are the consequences of thinking that such a thing is possible? Because if you talk to people in psych, so you talk to psychotherapists, you talk to people, professionals, there are a lot of them would say that if you accept the, that notion, that's a very dangerous idea that you can be born in the wrong body. And it, at the, in fact, in a sense, it is a kind of a, a pathological idea that you, your body is wrong. Your body is your body. You are, in some sense, your body. There is an odd, with some of the people engaged in this discussion, there is this odd sense that there is an essence or a, you could call it a soul, Gary, which is you, which is precisely and particularly you and it is your identity and your personality which is not your body and i find it very hard to get the hang of what that means how you can be something which is not your body i'm not my body are you saying michael that after several hundred years of atheistic secular liberalism we've just come back to recreating the soul oh i think the the soul is here big and strong but it's a very it's a particular kind of soul as i said it's a it's a cartesian soul where it's this pure spirit which is inhabiting a machine. We are ghosts in the machine. And the body is, they have a very low opinion of the body in this. There's a very low opinion about the connection between body. And now the fact that how the brain operates with this in the sense the connection between my sense of myself, my identity, my personality, and my brain, and the, the, the fact that there, there doesn't seem to be any sense of connectivity between that, and then sometimes, Gary, have you noticed there is this odd attempt to say that all those hormones that made all of my body a boy, they all washed out, but somehow my brain, because there is a, an awareness that my brain is somehow intimately connected with my personality, my identity, somehow I have a female brain, male body, female brain as if my brain is not part of my body as if my brain wasn't washed in in, in all of these hormones exactly the same as the rest of it was the soul i just enough that anybody cares if you go back into some medieval 
philosophy and Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas would have said very clearly and definitely, I am not my body, I am not my soul, I am my soul and my body. I, my, the, the human beings are enfleshed creatures. Actually, there is a, on hormones a good book that came out there the uh, actually just a couple of days ago called uh, Testosterone, the story or T, the story of testosterone, the hormone, hormone that dominates and divides us, um, by a Carol Hooven. It's very well worth reading, but it also, as part of their research, they talked a lot to transgender people who had undergone hormonal treatments. Uh, going through it. and I think detransitioning as well I, I haven't totally finished the book at the minute and it's very interesting to hear some of the um, changes that happened to people's thought patterns and their emotional lives when they started taking things like testosterone is there a sense of having when they started taking testosterone the sense of oh this feels really different I, oh, I, I get that now I kind of that was, that's what men were, why they do this or what they say. For anybody who doesn't want to read the book, and I say you should read the book because you should read books, could read books, you can go and watch, uh, I think, around a three-hour conversation that uh, the author had with Joe Rogan where she goes over pretty well the arguments in it. And it's, it's a very interesting subject. I found the whole the whole the, the the her discussion of the particular you're saying Gary Gary of the the personality changes and the physiological differences and the way that it produces as well as and combined with the psychological uh, difference in the way that it it molded perceptions it's very it was fascinating kind of surprised that she ended up on uh, Joe Rogan about it because the book only came out like three days ago. I know the book's been out for maybe it's out here, but it's been out in the states for longer. Um, because Stella O'Malley, I I think I'm sure Stella O'Malley wrote a review of it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, she may have got a she may have got a review copy on the what should be taught in schools. It may surprise you, Michael, but the support levels drop for anyone who has children across the board. Yeah, that that was uh, that was uh, predictable, but. Kind of reassuring, and I think that this is the thing on all of these issues. When you talk to people who have children who are going into that stage, who are nine, ten, eleven, and they're heading into that, shall we say, what is perceived now to be the potentially problematic ages of say 12, 13, 14. So, there are parents out there who are very, very scared about uh, sudden rapid onset dysphoria and things like that. When you look at the question of should it be thought in school that there's many different gender types, those with children are still 41% in favour and 40% against. Yeah. Then when you go, can you should be taught that you can be born in the wrong body, 42% of those with children are for, 37% against. And then when you get to, should children be thought, taught that they can change their sex, those with children, 37% in favour, 44% against. It's the only one where the swing actually brings it clear into the other direction. Right, yeah. Not a lot of coherence there. I don't want to be critical, but there's not a lot of coherence about that. I don't know if you if you take one side, how you take the other, but anyway. This is just something that's generally presented to the public as being true, and also sort of true to a degree where it's there's a religious aspect to it. It's not possible to say. It's not true, and even asking for proof could be seen as, you know... Oh, yeah. 
it's it, not just heresy it's 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 violence one of the things that is really noticeable when you start to look at the, the the debates and the discussions online and elsewhere about around this area the language that is used by activists is full of violence and when i say violence i mean a sense of being the object of violence i'm sure gary you've noticed that when the most regular memes is when they accuse people of you are literally trying to to erase my existence you are attacking my life These i think the standard one is um is um is a reference to the death of transgender children yes which statistically no one has ever been able to show any evidence for mostly because the evidence of transitioning improving mental health outcomes is terrible to begin with as regards suicidality and outcomes you know it's a it's a long time since it's been done but the if anybody's interested they can google they can find that the guardian some years ago did an article which basically was a an attempt to create a meta-analysis of all of the various studies that were then available on outcomes for people post-transition to see if in fact post-transition did improve mental health outcomes for uh, transgender people their conclusion was that if anything there was a very slight and that's all it was a very slight negative uh, regarding the outcomes for people who had fully transitioned but they they did say with the caveat and this is still true that it is very difficult to get good data on this that the sample sizes you tend to be getting are small you're not getting long i mean longitudinal studies you no know. people tend to fall out of study i mean one of the things about follow-ups it's very hard to get people people who go through uh, clinics and who do transition trying to get follow-ups is has been historically incredibly difficult so that was that's actually the I, the thing you brought up there is actually quite an interesting one because it was it was an actual meta study the university of uh, birmingham carried it out but they carried it out because the guardian went to them and asked them to carry it out because they had talked to several people who regretted uh, changing their gender uh, now this would have been around two thousand, I think, somewhere around then. Oh yeah, it's a lo- it's a good good long time ago. The reason also they did was because it had become kind of a an accepted fact that suicidality rate in pre-transition people is incredibly high, and the the activists were saying that this was the only way you could save lives. That this was what you had to do to save lives was to go was. It was to to facilitate transition and that after transition everybody well not everybody they wouldn't claim that but there was very significant improvements in the mental health outcomes for people who transition so they went and said well let's see if that's actually true because we do have stories of people who have detransitioned and people who have regretted and th- this was the outcome yeah anyway so moving on michael just before we close up Yes. The WHO has come out, has uh, had a bit of a reversal. It has, Gary. Um, the WHO, gosh, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit conflicted with this because every so often the WHO comes out with a report which says something that uh, supports something I, I believe. And then a, a lot of the time it comes out with stuff which is just nonsense. So I, 
I don't know if I'm, there's a temptation just to say, listen, let's just take the WHO and dump it into the sea. My suspicion is that actually the problem is at the very top, it is a UN organization and therefore more basically worse than useless. But somewhere in the middle, when you're talking about the people who are actually kind of pra real practitioners who are working and doing stuff, that they may actually be doing good work and they may be very decent, honorable people doing valuable things. But I think at the top, well, as the Italians would say, the fish rots from the head. In March, the WHO said that it was extremely unlikely that COVID could have escaped from a Chinese virology lab in Wuhan. They're now saying that that was premature and they have asked China to be open and cooperative with them and give them raw the raw data that they asked for that China never gave to them. Uh, the head of the WHO, Tedros, then said, I was a lab technician myself. I'm an immunologist and I have worked in the lab and lab accidents happen. It's common. That's reassuring, isn't it? So we've gone from this is a horrible conspiracy theory that undermines public health to, well, you know, these things happen. Yeah, but it was not just an un a conspiracy theory undermining public health. It was also nasty and racist. And it was specifically targeted at the Chinese authorities. And the Chinese authorities have been simply wonderful, had not, hadn't they, Gary? They provided every service they could possibly do. They had, I remember an iconium coming out uh, from the WHO about the remarkable positivity they had dealing with the Chinese authorities and their ability and desire to communicate what was going on and to keep them up to date. They were, had been remarkably good. Now, what was not that long ago, conspiracy theory for the kind of paranoid netheads that, well, we won't say who they are. And it's no longer that. Michael, I wonder if this is, um, if this is related to a story. I didn't see it reported in Ireland, but I might have just missed it. But in June of this year, and I'll put a link to the story below, a fairly respected US scientist was looking into um, the evolution of COVID-19, and he discovered that some of the earliest work on the genetic fingerprint of the virus, Michael, had been deleted from international databases at the request of Chinese scientists. <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Why did they do that, Gary? Well, Michael, uh, according to Jesse Bloom, uh, leading evolutionary biologist at the yes. Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, yeah. uh, it seems likely the sequence was deleted to obscure its existence. You'd have to know what were the practical purposes. Why would you want to delete something? I mean, it's very unusual for scientists to, to sort of go out there and say, oh, we don't need to know any of that. We, all that stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know all that stuff now. We've used that up. Just delete it. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's not taking up much memory space on my on my laptop. I, I have cloud storage, you know. I, I pay my one ninety nine a month to Google and I get 500 megs. And it's, it's okay. I can, I, can, I can keep it. No, no, no. Delete it. Delete it. Really. No, we don't need it anymore. Delete. It's a, just an odd thing for a for a bunch of scientists to want to do is delete stuff. And yet, uh, they deleted, the, the stuff they deleted seems to have fallen within a particular category, in a particular area, at a particular time. You see, Michael, there was also this problem. They had deleted it, but people were able to dig up most of it. They managed to go into the archives of the Google Cloud server, everything had been stored on. Now <laughs> you see, that Google Archive, Gary, it's a bitch. It is a bitch. 
You know, you think you've deleted everything and then suddenly people are just pulling sequences out of the ether. The bastards! The uh, chap who pulled them anyway said he believed it was evidence that the virus was circulating in Wuhan before anything broke out at the seafood market. Right. And that would, that would shock us all, would it not? Yeah. So in June 2020, the team, uh, the Chinese team of scientists, sent in a request that everything be pulled from the servers. Yeah, apparently they told them that they'd updated the virus sequencing and were going to submit them to a different database, which apparently didn't happen. Right. It turns out the data was also removed from uh, some of the uh, Chinese database as well. So it looks like the the uh, sequences were just removed from everywhere. And then the WHO, when that was revealed, came out and said, that's a very serious matter. Uh, we can only trust that the Chinese have in fact given us all uh, of the early data that they have available to them, which you could read, Michael, as indicating that they hadn't been given that. And when I say, by the way, that you could read as such a thing as saying they weren't in the data given to the WHO, uh, I mean, we know they weren't in the data given to the WHO. Okay. And that was the data used to produce the report. It's weird, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, I think the two, the two stories, Gary, may be connected. I suspect they may be. There is a reasonable chance. So, yeah, now you've moved from uh, talking about a COVID lab leak from something that will get you banned from social media and or your account blacklisted to something which even the WHO says is, uh, you know, premature to, to uh, say it didn't happen or couldn't have happened. <laughs> well, tune in next week to see what, 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 what conspiracy theory has now become history. Yeah. The scientist, by the way, who found those deleted... Uh, uh, the deleted data was uh, accused by a different virologist making a weak case and then using systemic racism to do the heavy lifting. No, he didn't go there, Gary, did he? He didn't go there. I, I love that. I love the, but what about all this data the Chinese deleted? You're racist? Yes, that'll do. Well, yeah, we, we, we're happy with that. Are we happy with that, team? He's a racist, isn't he? Yeah, he's a racist. Yeah, yeah, definitely he's a racist. Just get out there, tell Facebook and tell Twitter, ignore this man, he's a racist. Yeah, because he was he was saying, you know, he published something that relied, Michael, and this was, I believe, the exact quote, relied on the premise that scientists from China are not trustworthy. Oh, that's shocking. And there's no evidence those sequences were deleted for any malicious reason. But on the face of it, I think it's a strong point, Gary. I mean, they were deleted, yes. They could have been deleted for any number of perfectly reasonable uh, innocent reasons. I'm not a scientist, so I can't think of any. But I'm sure if you're a scientist, you can think of loads and loads. And it is kind of racist, you know, just to assume that there are some shenanigans going on. So I, I don't know. I'm changing my opinion on this guy. Then again, Michael, I mean, you know, if there's an innocent explanation, you, you would expect it to be provided. Whereas when USA Today went to the Chinese embassy in Washington about it, because they were just emailing everyone at that point trying to get a response... The response said, to politicize origin tracing, a matter of science, will not only make it hard to find the origin of the virus, but give free rein to the political virus and seriously hamper international cooperation on the pandemic. Which, Michael, you may may realize is not actually a response to the question of why this was deleted at all. 
But wise words, Gary, wise words, and I think words that we can all get behind. I mean, there's nothing in that statement I think any reasonable man couldn't uh, agree with. So I'm conflicted now. I'm conf See, I hadn't heard the other side of it. I didn't know the guy was a racist. That's news to me. So now that's making me look at him and think, you know. And also, you're saying if you were innocent. Yeah, but you know, innocent people shouldn't have to go around explaining their innocence all the time. And it seems to me, again, a double standard there. Chinese people, perfectly innocent. Chinese government, perfectly innocent. And they're being demanded, you know, well, you go and prove your innocence. I mean, nobody else has been asked to do that. So I think maybe, you know, I'm conflicted now. I don't know. I think may, it may, there may be something to do it or it may just be a big racist anti-Chinese uh, conspiracy. Anyway, Michael, I think we could say that the, the Chinese are not going to be happy about the WHO walking back that report that they released in March. Yes. Particularly because when they released it in March, they were kind enough to allow Chinese scientists to jointly write the report. Which it was <laughs> collaborative of them. It was very... The members of the team were saying that the Chinese government had refused to give them access to uh, raw data and information about the early stages of the outbreak. Which, considering the entire purpose of the team, Michael, was to determine the origins, didn't go down terribly well. I think we talked about this at the time, and there was some... Well, there's a, there's a good degree of comedy in this, as there was in, in all of the, the WHO's activities in in this area. But the fact that they, they're, they're, they're a bunch of scientists saying, no, no, hold on. All the stuff we wanted to know, they've refused to give us the raw data. They've refused to let us get onto the premises. And then they says, yeah, that, yeah, I, we, we, but listen, here's some of their scientists. They know what's all this, all that good stuff. They'll help write the report. You know, you can imagine. I mean, if you're if you're one of the the WH guys sent in to actually investigate, it, you might know how pissed off you'd be. Not only are you not getting it, you're being told, "Yeah, yeah, I know we're not. They're not actually giving you all the stuff that you 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 want." But here's some here's some dudes from them, and they'll help you write the report so you don't get anything wrong. It's just a chap in a commissar's hat. <laughs> yeah. It's all good stuff. Like that's that's how this works. It doesn't matter about the process. You get to the end, you get a report that says. Actually, there's no evidence. And, you know, two or three references away from that, no one even remembers that there were problems with the methodology of it. That's how this works. You know, it, I'm sure it's all very, it's all good stuff. And scientists get, you know, excited about this kind of thing. And I'm sure it's it's all valuable. But, you know, is the Wuhan virus all not very much last year? The weekend forecast is the temperatures are going to be 26, 27. We're going to go to the beach. You don't need masks. Uh, I'm double vaccinated. I'm going to get my passport. I can eat indoors. I don't care about anybody else. I mean, they, it's not my fault they didn't get vaccinated. You know, can we not just drop it? I mean, you say that, Michael, but Leo came out there and said that the unvaccinated have never been at these levels of risk. <laughs> and I heard that, and my immediate response was just sort of like, <laughs> risk of what? Yeah, that's the thing. We may talk about this on Sunday. Uh, I don't know if either of the strengths to do it. We were talking off air about it. The language that's being used at the moment about this about is just bizarre. The, the, the use of the word risk and the use of the word say, risk, riskier, this is the riskier. I, 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 utter, no context, no metrics, no sense of probability or odds at all. Everything, all these just words thrown out. And sentences with weird syntax, basically saying that if you go out in the rain, there's a chance you get wet. But 
phrased in such a way as to make you think that this is a strange and unusual a new phenomenon somehow somehow connected with the delta danger as it says in the irish in the irish independence there's a headline there today delta danger without ever going on to point out why there's a danger that is peculiar or particular to delta what i've particularly enjoyed is um is just the people just mixing together Oftentimes, apparently, without realising they're different concepts, the idea of transmissibility and virulence. Anyway, I would I would take the opportunity to wish all our listeners out there to go out and have a COVID-free weekend. It's going to be scorching. Enjoy it. Have an ice cream. Have a cornet. And we'll be back on Sunday, hopefully. All the best.